Next question. Okay, so we're doing like part two of the uh, Danielle Mitchich Force Majeure podcast where we riff off on things that we talked about or things that I talked about with Danielle and go on various tangents. Tangents, funnily enough. Um, about that and about other things. Uh, I'm Charles Sanders. I'm Eliza Sanders. And what did you want to ask me about or talk about? Oh, I found it interesting that that workshop setting enables failure. Um, training situations like actual, like um, you know, tertiary three years doing your doing your course in acting or whatever. That the most important moments about that are the failures, and that's when you you learn loads. And like obviously everyone knows that you learn most from a failure. Um, but trying to cultivate a space in which the failure can be celebrated in the moment of being a failure mm. and whether or not that can still be a lesson even if you're like cool I failed as it happened <laughs> or whether you have to have the kind of suffering and feeling like failure is bad thing. I think my impulsive response is no it doesn't make any difference if you just embrace the failure that it was a failure and, and are happy and fine with that. I, th I don't think that should make any difference whether it's something that you can learn from in exactly the same way as if you would have you know flagellate yourself about it but I think there are different framings of failure as an idea you know there's the idea that something is a failure that's just a kind of positive negative thing there's the idea of failure as a, as a learning experience but there's a kind of a third framing of failure as something here's a big wanky word constitutive in what the fuck does that mean uh, like it, it's one of the constituents yeah it's one of the principal constituents of another thing. So there's a, there's a series of really great books about failure as a constitutive element of theatre and of live performance. Made me think that I can do my knitting while we do this podcast because stitching. You'll you'll you know you'll click and then it'll be annoying oh. for the audience. Well, I'll, I'll try and we'll see how we do it. One of the things that I was talking about with a bunch of the uh, ins other insight attendees was this idea of failure as a constitutive element of theatre. That it is in part the fact that theatre is. The fact that live performance is never truly real, it's never truly kind of successful. You know, it always requires a suspension of disbelief, it always requires a... Um, well, that's a buzzy way to think about it, because it's not real, it's not successful. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a great book called... I think it's called... Uh, Stage Fright, Animals and Children, or something. Cool. And it's about how all the things that remind us that theatre's not real are the main constitutive elements of theatre. What we like about it. Yeah. What turns us on about it. Like I was saying this last night. How audiences love a corpse. Yeah. You know, because it, it reminds them that the actor is an actor and it's kind of Brechtian in that way. Also, maybe I'm just making excuses for myself, but I said last night, like, sometimes I actively like to go on stage kind of not knowing my lines just a tiny bit because what's exciting about the theatre is that something could go wrong and you have to, like... Like, all my favourite performances to look back on are the ones where, like, a prop hasn't been there or, you know, something's gone wrong. Mm. It's that moment of improvisation and being... Also, like, I'm a massive improvisation nerd. Like, I love that stuff as well. Well, and that's, I think, the thing of... Terry always used to say at acting school, this is Terence Crawford, head of acting at Lake College of the Arts. Wise man. Wise very, man. Very wise man. He's written, he's written two great books. Yeah, um, you should read them. But, yeah, they're called... Uh, Dimensions of Acting. Dimensions of Acting and Trade Secrets. Uh, one of them is a kind of acting... Dimensions of Acting is a kind of uh, actor training manual and trade secrets is a lingerie catalogue 
Yes. No. It's, <laughs> it's a book about. It's a bit um, what it sounds it's like. A, it's though, a right? book of interviews with actors. It's about a lingerie catalogue and little stories by prostitutes. <laughs> You're an outrage. I would read that book though. But don't call it trade secrets because that title's already taken. <laughs> if you if you feel like writing that book, so yeah, Terry always used to say that. Now we did go on a tangent. I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, sorry. Hey, it's your job to come back from the tangent. I know. We what were talking was... about. Oh, improvisation. Um, Terry always used to say that all performance is improvisation. It's just about discovering and defining what the circle of improvisation is. So normally in theatre, say the physical shape is set and the words that come out of your mouth are set, but the kind of emotional life of the piece is improvised each night. And you know, we I remember reading that in one of his books and, and wondering if it could be fun to invert that, to be like very specific about the emotional life of something, but to like as a, as a practice thing to but try the form being not set or yeah, well, I think you know, switching off. around what the what the set thing is and what the improvised thing is. Yeah, and well that happens in dance quite a bit, in a, mm-hmm. in a way, that like the task is the task. And so it's not, the, it's not so much the emotional state, but the, you have a challenge or a task that you have to do, but what actually happens physically is not always the same. It's not always the same. And I think it happens in like jazz vocal performance and stuff, where people, they know that they want to express a certain thing, mm. but when they go on a, on a scat or a riff or, you know, that kind of thing, the shape changes in an attempt to best express what's going on that night that in the event. Yeah. Like if it was in a play to use that as a, as a process, as a way to understand something better. As a developmental tool. And, a, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Cool. Terry, what a guy. Sorry, I feel like it's my job to start the tangents, but... <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not feeling very tangenty today. I'm not today. feeling very tangenty today. The, the conversation you had with Danielle and talking about warming up different bodies and different skills made me think of this great workshop I did with Andrew Morris and he talked about warming up five different elements the body the breath the imagination the communication and the speech and I just found that those were nice because something like the communication and the imagination I think are often forgotten about in the warming up process Mm. and often they come as a result if it's a good warming up process but to specifically address communication and imagination as being important for the artist within the space, not just for, you know, the, the creative leader of the room. Anything you've got to say about that? Yeah, I think that that's... Yes. And, <laughs> yes, good idea, Eliza. Slash well, Andrew. Andrew. Oh, he's so great. He just did a workshop in Sydney and I couldn't go. I think that's one of the things that Danielle's practice, or the, the practice that she's developing. The Michich method. The Michich method. The Michich method. Yeah. That that's really good at as well. The training itself is a very physical and vocal thing, but it gets the body into an active state, and then she just has a, these series of really interesting tasks that are imaginative tasks that can be generative, but also just get the body, get the imagination happening inside the body too. Because I think that's we forget that we don't forget very often. I mean, mostly we're pretty good at remembering it, but we don't necessarily attend as closely as we could to the fact that for a performing artist. The imagination is only useful if it then comes out into the body and the voice. Mm. Like if, if there's a kind of clear channel of, of expression from one to the other. It's a bit different for a director or a choreographer who has to get it out in either words or examples or tasks or whatever and then put it onto other people's bodies. The That's true. Since I've been making more, I haven't had that experience of being able to like just lush out and enjoy the metaphors that come from 
improvisation and body exploration stuff because I feel like in that moment I have to know what it is and articulate it for later for when I'm leading the room and having to share and articulate the mm. metaphor and the, and the imagery stuff. But there's that kind of great place you get to be in as a performer that you can sort of keep some of those things secret. Yeah, it was interesting during the Insight Workshop as well, because the preponderance of attendees, that's a really wanky way to say that, almost everyone was a performer <laughs> of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> preponderance. Um, Sorry, Charlie, continue telling me about the preponderance of attendees. Almost everyone was a performer. Everything was driven by the idea of, of performing and creation with the body and the voice in space. So I was doing that for the first time in years. And there were a few moments where I got really stuck in my head, but I was, I was reminded of how rewarding and challenging and rewarding that sense of play in yourself is, as opposed to in a directive practice, it's a kind of a sense of play <laughs> like a puppet master. Well, it's all about communication. Yeah, although I did find, and this is a really interesting thing too, I think that one of the big differences between actor performers and dancer performers, generally speaking, it's a gross generalisation, but actors will tend to want to reach out to another person as part of the creative process, whatever that may be, whether it's improvisational, whether it's set or whatever, they, it tends to be a much more communicative pro process. And I think when actors warm up, they warm up their communication muscles in a whole variety of ways, some of them formalised and some of them not formalised, in a way that dancers, again, gross generalisation, don't tend to do. Dancers tend to warm up their attunedness to their own body and mental state and voice. Mm. Maybe not so much voice, but... Well, that's what I think I really liked about Andrew's five things was it was equally valuing, you know, that both of those things need to happen. Also, um, in counter technique, I remember that when I first heard that one of the tools was the gossip strategy, which is literally you just come in and you just sit on the floor and you just talk shit with people. <laughs> and like when that became like a strategy from a technique that I paid money to learn, I was like, I'm doing good being an artist when I go in and talk <laughs> to my friends. And I felt very like, there's something fucked about that. Like I feel like I can only enjoy myself if I also feel like it's work. It's I feel like I'm yeah, doing yeah. good artisty work. Yeah, I have that as well. But but actually the, the, the space needed that, that on the first day of those one body, one careers, when people kind of weren't conscious of that, it was this thing like oh we're here and we we do our bodies and you know we only talk when we're not in the studios i mean not heaps actually maybe that's a lie people are pretty chatty anyway that it helps it helps to be able to be like oh that's right we're people here in a room together and part of what's so beautiful about the arts is that it's about the sharing and the communication well literally the whole point of it is to communicate something whether what? it be obliquely or you know literally warming up those communication muscles but what if it's what if what you want to communicate is that humans should be not communicative creatures and that they should just be all on their own and not talk to anyone or is that anyone's opinion <laughs> i don't think it's any artist's opinion yeah. maybe maybe visual artists oh i started rereading um artist therapy by alan de botton mm. great have you read it no it's been sitting on my shelf for ages i know because i took it because i wanted to read it again yeah no i never got around to it i will um, read it and then yeah. we can do a podcast about it I think we really should. Great. I'll reread it and then you can, oh, you should reread it first because I have a shorter memory span than you do. Anyway, great book, also highly recommend. Um, I was going to say something about, oh, about gossiping is really, this is really interesting, it's not directly arts related. Um, but I was, I think it was the Very Bad Wizards podcast that I found this out on. Um, I'm not sure, could be, could be Sam Harris, I don't know, one of the people who looks at neurobiology and stuff like that. 
Um, but that gossiping is like one of the intrinsic, most basic human traits. And, and evolutionary biologists, evolutionary psychologists, rather, trace it back to like a, a total self-preservation thing of like one of the reasons we were able to survive on the savannas of Africa or wherever is that we could go and say, hey, that beta male in the clan is planning a mutiny on the alpha male and oh my gosh. about all those things. Beta is like <laughs> totally planning to bitch slap alpha later today. And that was like, that's why the human race is, is so successful. So gossiping is like our main good thing. So gossiping is the reason for global warming and the reason that all the other species are now endangered and the oceans are filled with plastic and... I mean, you could think of it that way, but you could also <laughs> think of it as, you know, like gossiping is the, the way that we got, you know, like Rembrandt and Shakespeare and... Ugh, white know, dudes. Travelling to the moon <laughs> and Beyonce. Travelling to the moon. If you were given the opportunity to travel to the moon, would you go? No, but I'd definitely go to Mars. Why would you go to the moon? Because you, there's no plans to like terraform the moon and make it into like uh, an actual place to live. Whereas yeah, Mars but you could is... imagine that you were on the face of the moon from the Mighty Boosh, and you'd be like, "Eh, the one time, oh, the planets had a dinner party, and uh, Uranus he forgot to bring the cheese, and I said, "Eh, on the moon, I'm made of cheese. Why don't you grate off a bit of my head?" And we did, and it tasted like baby sick. And then he'd be like, "Oh, there's some humans walking on my face," you know, because that would be you. You would be the humans walking on the moon's face. Shut up, building. I have a crush on you, just in case you ever hear this. Every episode, you're just like a shout out someone you've got a crush on. Who was it last time? Tony Jones. Oh yeah, I love you, Tony Jones. Don't don't think that because I also love Noel Fielding, my love for you is any less Tony Jones. It's a different kind of love. You fulfil a different part of me. That's funny. I think I have a deep sense of polyamory in my admiration for people, but not in my in my own romantic relationships. I think that that's like pretty much everyone. Yeah, I realised as I was saying it that that was completely not profound in any yeah. way, shape, or form. Well, what I think is a more profound. I wonder who I'm going to have a crush on next podcast. I don't know. Probably Russell Brand. Oh no! Look, I'm just having that one now too. You're going to run out. Oh no, I won't. I think the more profound people. thought and question around that question, not like answer, is why do we have this relationship to romantic relationships? Like one person needing to fulfil everything in that realm. Whereas we don't have it with friends or people that we admire. We were talking about that or... this morning as well. It would be so much of a better idea. So much. It would be so much of a better so idea to eat us so much to raise children with your best friends. Because it's like, I'm probably never going to break up with my best friends that I know I've had forever. You don't break up with your friends in the same way that you break up with lovers because there's not that same sense of jealousy and all that, all that stuff. Well, there's no, and there's not the same sense of ownership. Yeah. But part of the sense of ownership is what makes it possible to, to, to cohabitate in a way that is conducive to doing something as long-term and complex and integrated as raising children together. It's like why, when people raise children with non-partners, it's usually like with the very close help of their parents or siblings or whatever that, that are other relationships that have a strong, strong sense of ownership. Whereas if you start raising children with friends, you don't have that level of commitment to a friend where if you get a job opportunity in a different city, you would turn it down to stay I've with your friend. I've often wondered about that. I remember when I was, I, I was a year after I'd moved to New Zealand and one of my really close friends had like just finished having a gap year and she didn't know what to do with her life. And I was like, cool, come to New Zealand and just live with me because it's great here and we really like each other and we really like spending time together and you can just like build a life here and that's all good. And then I was like, why? Like, 
why this is someone I've known for like six years. We really know we like each other's company. We really know we give each other good vibes and good feels and stuff. And it was just like, oh, that's a silly joke. But then like, if she was to meet someone and then be and like, it oh, romantic. it was romantic. Yeah. Actually, she has now met someone and has fallen in love with him and has now moved back to Canberra where she doesn't really want to be mm. <laughs> because because that is that kind of relationship. Ruby and I talk about it all the time. Like, why would I not move to London to <laughs> be with essentially the friend love of my life? But if someone who I'd met like two months ago popped up, I'd be like, yeah, I'll consider coming and living in your city. Isn't that weird? I wonder if it's to do with com it's to do with compacts made about relationships. You know, like a friendship is a the implicit compact of a friendship is what do you mean a compact? Like the the agreement. Yeah. Is the implicit agreement is that you will be there for each other in times of need, that you'll have fun together, but not that you will cohabitate. And I think that the the idea of moving somewhere, for instance, or, you know, making a major life change for a friend is partly something that we don't take seriously because because there's no... <laughs> I just realised that Ruby is my Gale. I made myself Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> you are Ruby's Gale. Aww, I, I'm fine with that, actually. Yeah. That's cool. No, but the thing is, like... <laughs> She's like, you... and Jewish. <laughs> if you move to, um... If you move to London Table with Ruby, yeah. there's no... It That's doesn't... my Gale. Sorry. <laughs> It's not beholden on her to not a year later go, okay, now I have an opportunity else, yeah. in, in Berlin and I'm going to go and live there, you know, and up and desert you. Like you would. Yeah, but that's not. But opportunities come and go in the same way in any relationship. Yeah, well, but in a romantic relationship, you would. Like the assumption would be that that would be discussed and that that would be a commitment that, you know, you're making yeah. together. I mean, it's but not. But why don't we? Like we could do friendships like that. We totally could. But it's not part of the. The implicit compact yeah. you have to do it really consciously yeah yeah also i find it fascinating when people who are in romantic relationships that is a part of their implicit thing they just do their lives and then sometimes they're near each other and sometimes they're not and but it's not like a oh no it's a long distance thing actually there's a great school of life alan de botton video about that which advocates for long distance relationships actually being healthier because then when you are together you know you um respect the time you have together and you appreciate it more and the little day-to-day -day niggly things don't get in the way of being able to you know love each other and stuff that's so, true well in my experience that's true to a certain extent and not past that extent yeah like when shannon and i were in a long distance relationship where we could see each other every two to four weekends and have a long weekend and it was only going to adelaide mm -hmm. it worked really really well and we you know, we were very committed to the time we had together and we spoke on the phone all the time and it was a really beautiful structure for a relationship. And when you do talk, you talk about actual things. Important things and yeah. And But then when I went to America and I was away for four months. Too far. Too far, too long, no physical contact, you know, like bad mm -hmm. um, time zoniness to yeah. make it work. That was too much. Too and much. Ruined our too relationship. Much. Oh yeah, heartbreak. And now he has upgraded to the younger model. So hot. It's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway. Hey, what are you gonna do? Life goes on. It does. Sorry, that sounded very non-empathetic. <laughs> you are a very non-empathetic person. I'm very empathetic. I'm just not very um good at being nice out loud. So what else did you want to ask about force? Um I wrote oh rest. Yeah, I liked what um Danielle said about um the body like wants to rest. 
Because it's interesting because our sister Daisy has a whole practice based around rest, <laughs> which is... Her uh, whole creative practice is resting. I mean, I think she's the smartest person in the world. She gets money to go and sleep places. As far as I'm concerned, that's what happens, right? <laughs> Pretty sure that's not quite what no. happens. No, um, it's a very interesting then... practice and you should all look into it more. Especially me, because I'm her sister and I should know more about it. Um, I think Resting Mess, which is her most recent work, which they just did in Finland, has turned out to be actually very non-restful very quite non stressful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that actually, like, yes, the body does want to rest, but the body doesn't know how to really, really rest. Mm. I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, <laughs> it was like we were waiting in between scenes and I was really tired and I was like leaning on the chair in this way, which I could feel was making my body more tired than if I was just standing up normally. Mm. So I was like putting, you know, pressuring down in weird, weird parts of my body and blah, blah, blah. It's true that the body doesn't want to be completely like switched on, actively engaged in that way that you have to be for performance all the time. But also that it takes so much work to be able to rest properly. Like how easy is it to fall asleep in Shavasana after like a really good yoga session and then you'll get home at night after a full day and you'll be tired, you'll be lying in bed and like, why can't I sleep right now? Because you haven't done the work to come into that state of rest. Yeah. So there's two different kinds of rest being talked about. One of them, what Danielle's talking about is the, is the biological and kind of scientific tendency towards inertia, mm. which is just science, but also, you know, as science, it applies to everything. And pushing against, actively knowing that you need to push, that, push against that in the mode of performance or in the mode of, of training for performance, that's very different to the idea of rest as a thing that you need to regenerate yeah to, to regenerate both psychologically and physiologically but I think that the body's the body's wanting to go to that that place in performance and stuff like that is part of the body's need to regenerate right mm, I don't think so I think that inertia thing is is different I think it, I think the inertia thing is just is just laziness and the, and laziness as a manifestation of science's need to to make a thing still I'm not sure about that. I'm just going to get some more thread for my knitting. Um, so here's a question for you. Mm. Um, why do you make art? Because I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> I have literally no other skills. Um, no, that's not Good, moving on. Next question. <laughs> do you have a pair of scissors? Um, no, uh, yeah, maybe in the top drawer there. Okay. The top drawer, which is also the bottom drawer. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, what, uh, let's, let's give a better answer to that question. A big part of my motivation to be an artist or a creative is to do with the fact of community and how I grew up in it and how it was a safe, a safe space, not in the like right-wing people will yell at you kind of way, but it felt like really safe and fun and nice. Why will right-wing people yell at you? They too? hate safe spaces. Yeah. Um, it's a thing. But yeah, it was a place where I could be myself, be free, and, and that community kind of really saved my life when I was a young, insecure... Whippersnapper? You know, person who didn't have a good time at school and blah, blah, blah. Whippersnapper? I yeah. want to hear you say the word whippersnapper. I'm, I'm not going to say that word. Say whippersnapper. And that, that, that community is a really... I, I love working and operating in a space where the sense of community and the sense of collegiality and we're all in it togetherness is paramount. And I get I always get really disappointed when there are creative spaces that aren't like that. Also when those are the creative spaces that get loads of funding and 
a very prevalent and general public are like, oh my god, the stuff they're creating is really amazing. I'm like, yeah, but the soul isn't there. You got to have soul, Jimmy. I imagine that the creation of Dreamgirls had soul, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, look, you got to guess. you got to guess that it would, although it was written by white people. Was it? The composer's white. Huh. The same composer who wrote Chorus Line. Well, that takes us all back to the conversation that we had in the first. The same composer who wrote Chorus Line, really. Yeah, I think I so. I know that. You learn something new every day. What did you learn new today? I, I learned how to get to your house in Prospect. Oh, cool. Without I always think about being called Prostate. <laughs> uh, I feel like we talked about Prostate last podcast as well. I think we did. What prostate Theatres. Oh, yeah, Prostate Theatres. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was good. Um, prostate can mean so many things. Uh, if you mishear it. What was I going to say? Oh, I, when I was little and Dad said, you learn something new every day, I tried so hard to disprove him and I went and I sat down in my room and I just thought for ages and I, I thought, what if you just sat in a plain white room with nothing in there all day and you just you just had to sit there and nothing happened, you couldn't interact with anything, nothing could interact with you. And I was like, well, I guess you'd learn what it's like to be in a plain white room all day without interacting with anything. And I was like, okay, well, you just do it a second day and then you know everything. And I was like, but you'd learn what, how the second day is different to the first. And I was like, fuck, you just do it for a third day. And they'd be like, then you'd learn how the third day is different to the second day, is different to the first day. This is like nine-year-old me. And then I went back to that and I was like, Dad, it's true. You do learn <laughs> something new every day. You can't not learn something new in a day. Blew my mind. Yeah. Um, so that's a cool thing. My other question is, why don't you like the term creative industries? Oh, because it's it turns something that should be a community and a and a non-capitalistic um, enterprise into it's a capitalist term. Oh, fuck yeah. you, capitalism. I know, and we all hate capitalism in the arts because it fucks us over, uh, right royally, which we talked about that, that last week as well. Yeah, except when, you know, we get money. Then we go, yay, capitalism, but <laughs> when does that happen? Really Even then, I don't think the system is helpful. Like, no. like that kind of, and, and I'm not talking about like, I think it's the fact of, of kind of late-stage consumer capitalism. Like, I think there are versions of capitalism that can foster strong creative industries, but they're kind of mixed-market um, social capitalism like they have in most of Europe or much of Europe, where there is, you know, like, n less stuff is exposed to market forces than in America and Australia and increasingly the UK. And yeah, anyway. Um, Mary and Max, that's a good film. Got anything to say about that? It's great. I love that film. I always think of that film whenever anyone says, take a seat. And then I just, <laughs> I'm so tempted to just pick up a chair and walk out of the building. <laughs> I love, I love the bit where he talks about how if you drop your cigarette butt on the ground, then it will fall into uh, the drain. And then the drain goes into the ocean and then the cigarette butt will be in the ocean where there are fish and the fish will smoke it and they become nicotine dependent. And that's bad for the fish. And then he's like, that is a joke. Uh, you can tell that it is a joke because fishes cannot smoke cigarettes because they do not have pockets in which to put their lighters. <laughs> oh, I love a double-ended joke. Just like a double-ended dildo. That's not true. I don't like double-ended dildos. Actually, I don't know. I've never used one. Um, anyone who's got particular thoughts on double-ended dildos, send them in. We'll talk about it next podcast. Would you rather... Go into the future or into the past? Ah. Future. But only Rather than the past future. <laughs> <laughs> but if you went into the past, you could just nom 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 munchy on everything around you. What if it was, what if the past was a different al dente? 
and then the al dente. Is that the right word? Yeah, but you can't be a different al dente. It's not the amount that it's cooked. No, al dente means, uh, like, dente is like dent or hardness. So it's about, it's like, it's the... it's the name for the particular state of hardness. Yeah. Oh. Al dente. I thought it was like you could have it like a soft al dente or no, a firm al dente. No, no. You can have it like, you can have it al dente or you can have it soggy and disgusting. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. And next question. What bloopity bloopity? What is the ABBA song that sounds like pasta? Andante, andante. That's what it is. What does andante mean? Have you seen the new Abba movie? No. Oh, Even though it's got Cher in it. It's the only Cher movie I've never seen. <laughs> You're missing out. I mean, it's a lot of fun. I'll watch the 20 minutes that Cher's in at some stage. No, you just watch the whole movie because, you know, you only get one life and you might as well spend it doing things that are fun. That is one of the things that Alan de Botton talks about in Art as Therapy, that one of the purposes of art is hope and that artworks that bring us joy and pleasure are not useless or inferior because there's already enough bad stuff in the world and humans need a bit of hope and happiness. So that's a nice thing. Oh God. And he writes like three pages of it and every sentence feels like an amazing revelation and then I say it in one sentence and it's just like, yeah, obviously you dickhead. <laughs> that's like... That's um, why I'm not a philosopher. That's... Like I was reading, I think you might have had this experience with um, with artist therapy, and maybe I will when I read it too. But I read um, two amazing books by a guy called Yuval Noah Harari. Um, Good name, say it again. I know Yuval Noah Harari. Cool. He's an academic at the University of Jerusalem, um, and he's like a multidisciplinary academic. He does all sorts of weird stuff, um, and he writes really. He started out as a historian. He writes really beautifully. His books are called Sapiens and Homo Deus. Sapiens is the first one, which is called which is like a brief history of mankind and then homo deus is about the future and what we can perhaps extrapolate from the past about what the future might oh, be so like. it plays into our conversation about whether you'd like to go into the future or the past yes it does which was not really a conversation because you just asked the question and then i, I know we'll it. come back yeah. to it but when i was reading those books i kept having this revelation that that was how the world worked and the best way i can describe it is it's like you knew what a cake was and you knew what eggs and sugar and flour and chocolate powder were. Wait, is this a metaphor you made? I zoned out for a minute. Yes. Or is this what the book says? This is a metaphor that I made. Oh, okay. The metaphor for the feeling of revelation. Right. Is like, you knew what a cake is and you knew what all the ingredients were, but you didn't know how the ingredients became the thing. And then you read a cake recipe and you're like, oh. Whoa. And so he talks about like intersubjective reality and... What is that? Uh, intersubjective reality is the idea of things that are true because a group of people hold them to be true. Yeah. So, like, there is objective reality, like, you know... God. Plant. <laughs> no. Not God. That's the whole point, dickhead. Um, plants and trees and physics and shit. Yeah. And then there's subjective reality, which is like, I feel so. Um, oh. Not me right now. That's a subjective reality. And then there's intersubjective reality, like money which is not a real thing, but because everyone accepts it as a real, a real thing, it becomes a real thing. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, because our why of something, something, something. Yeah. And ruined the punchline. <laughs> the punchline is, we all know it's a figment of our wives', wives imaginations. imaginations. Yeah. Thanks, Shot Stephen Sewell. Oh! <laughs> I was pretending to be Stephen laughing at his own joke. 
That was, it was like it wasn't a terrible Stephen impersonation. Yeah, so future or past? Future. Is that what you said? Yeah, I'm not sure though. I mean, it's a risk, isn't it, the future? Because you don't know what it's going to be. Terrifying. Could be great. Could be, you know, the worst possible su- suffering for the largest num- possible number of people forever. <laughs> so scary. So scared. But I'm optimistic about the future. I am not. I'm terrified about the future. There are these two twins, as in like two people who are twins, not four people, who reckon that they were abducted and taken to the future by like aliens or something, and they... Who are alive now. Yeah, and they swear that this is the truth, and they say that they went to two places in the future. One was like 2150 or something, like a couple of hundred years in the future, Um, and one was like 24 or 25 something, like a couple Mm. hundred, few hundred years more, and they said that the truth of the future is that in a couple hundred years everything will be really fucked, and there's like these little enclaves of rich people in siloed like siloed communities and everyone else is like poor and the sea level's risen and it's horrible and gross and then in like 500 years it's all fixed and better um and even though the sea level is different humans figured out like ingenious good ways to do things and um there's much more equality and and goodness that that scares me because then if i have children they'll be the ones that have to live through the real shit time also, they're probably crazy people. Also, I was going to say, you probably shouldn't listen to it's this. It's highly <laughs> unlikely that they got abducted by aliens and taken to the future. I mean, to start with, for the aliens, that's a cool thing to look into. We should talk to those aliens and be like, yo, aliens, if you have this power to take us into the future, can you help us fix the shit that we've got ourselves in? Right. I would like to go into the past because I have a deep romantic connection to period dramas. and. But just... remember that if you went into the past, like, statistically... The, I'd be one of the poor people. Yeah, yeah. The one person. I mean, yeah, but I'd be one of the like, poor people that falls in love with one of the rich people, and then in the happy ending of my awesome period drama, gets to marry the prince. I think you're narrativizing that a little bit much. I think if you went into the real past, you would have to just be poor. Yeah, I don't know. I still think there would be a stronger sense of community or something that would be nice. I get very overwhelmed by how technology isolates people, and I like physical touch and stuff I mean actually the actual fact I mean I'm talking about just for a day not like I wouldn't want to live there um, because you know feminism hadn't happened yet and we're not there completely but we have made progress I can wear pants now which is good uh, I am currently sitting in the biggest man's bread ever while I do my knitting so well that's a really the section of all the different feminisms I'm still knitting but I'm sitting like a dude so in pants in pants um, but I'm doing it to impress a man. Oh, it's all very complicated. No, 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 you're right. Just wanted to make it seem more complicated than it is. Yeah, I don't know about the past or future thing. I think I'd rather. Just I like. Stay I would like to look at the inventions that led to the inventions of today. Like I'd mm. like. I would find it really fascinating, and not in that kind of like historical museum context, because I find that really just not interesting for some reason. But just like in a like an everyday being used way, those inventions, which like. I still just kind of blow my noodle that those things, people thought of that and those things exist. But like, to not look at them as like a, a historical artifact, just to look at them as like a, you know, operator. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Is that that thing from John Mulaney? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. It's like an action you have to call oh, it. Oh, he's another person I have a crush on. John Mulaney, if you ever hear this, tell your wife I think she's very lucky. That was good, right? That was respectful. Yeah. Trying not to be a... Uh, Sex pest. <laughs> Even though I'm a 24 year old woman working in the performing arts, mostly as a performer, there's much more chance that I am the perpetrator. Because hashtag me too, hashtag 
I don't know where the line is. Great, good. I feel like we need like one final tangenty question that will sum out this second half of the podcast. Second. Um, yeah. Well, I think this has been a podcast of many journeys. Many tangents, actually. <laughs> Does what it says on the tin. Um, tin food. When was that invented? Um, I think like First World War, maybe. I feel like this podcast isn't very interesting anymore. Just me musing about <laughs> things and you kind of trying to answer them but not being 100% not really sure. Um, what is your... Oh no, I don't want to finish on something negative. We might have to do two more questions. What's your least favourite thing about being a director? My least favourite thing about being a director is that you can't make anything on your own, which is like also one of my favourite things about it, but it's very difficult to practice without getting some other people there. And, you know, it's really rewarding when you can get people there, but sometimes you can't because they're busy or they're doing other things or you don't have any money to pay them and they need to pay their rent or whatever. And I want to do work. It's funny how frequently the best things are also the worst things. Yeah. I'm into that thing about polarity, binary, what am I, what am I saying? Yeah, polarity and binary. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cyclical things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's my least favorite thing about being a director, but it's also, you know, like it's constitutive. Let's see, I used it again in this context. Um, I don't know if you've used the word feckin' today yet. Well, not with you. <laughs> she just woke up this morning. <laughs> Rolled over to yourself in bed and said, feckin', 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 just to make sure you got a good few of them out. Yeah, just my quota for the day. Yeah. Someone else used it in a, um, oh, my fr a friend of mine is like subletting his room and he said a feckin' courtyard. I was like, that's so great. Oh, I know exactly what that courtyard. courtyard is like now. It's like green and mossy and mm. really nice and moist, but there'll be mosquitoes in the summer. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I yeah. like that. So descriptive. Love a good courtyard. So, okay, final question is, what do you... No, you have to ask me a question. <laughs> you have to ask me what is the main lesson. Oh, I don't even know what it is from inside. What did I learn? What's the main lesson from inside, Charlie? I'm not sure. You just asked me to ask you that question. I know. Well, I think that's a cool thing, though, that at the time... I, I always am so marvelled by people who can get to the end of the day and be like, oh, this is what I learned today. And like the next day, who can like recap what happened yesterday and be like, this is what we did and this is what we learned. Because it takes me like six months to then be like, oh yeah, that's what we did. Mm. Like I, I don't have very good macro vision. Micro? Long distance? Short distance? I'm not good at seeing what's right in front of me, but in hindsight I think I can see it better. Is that the same for everyone? I think it's the same to a certain extent for everyone. But I know what you mean about not having processed a learning or a, a piece of learning until like some time afterwards. And then later being really crystal about it. Yeah, there's so many things that I got out of that two weeks with Force Majeure that I'm like, I know that I'm that's there and I've, I've learnt a thing, but I haven't quite kind of formulated it yet. Mm. And I think that one of the things I'm really excited about is in December going and um, having a bit of a jam in the studio in Canberra to try putting some of the... Um, some of the techniques and models and ideas into generative practice because it was so non-generative, yeah. and yeah, I think it would be really it would be really interesting to see how they can become like synthesized with other elements of, of our practice that we already have. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's, that's my that's right. my Muslim friend's name. Do you, you know, know what I mean? mean? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's a good thing. That's a racist joke. Yeah, maybe we'll cut it. Mm, I feel like who does that joke hurt? 
Let's not have the rest of the conversation. <laughs> it just goes forever. Um, yeah, what is our practice? What is our practice? I don't know. We make shit. Well, at the moment I'm knitting. That's part of the practice. Too many tangents. That's our theme song now. As we head into the new year, which is only like just over a month away, we have a new funding strategy. We are now registered on Patreon because we have digital content coming out on a semi-regular basis. We are now in a position to use that platform. So please head over to patreon.com slash houseofsand and uh, you can support us from as little as $1 a month. Think about that. That's like one whole dollar and only one dollar. That's like less than a third of a coffee a month. Why does everyone talk about coffee? Like, I don't know. I don't even it? drink coffee. I know. It's such a thing. But It's like... It's one one dollar lolly. It's one it's little one dollar bag of lollies from the um, the dairy. The dairy, yeah, from the corner store. It's two fifty cent cones from McDonald's. Yeah, which you don't need anyway. Yeah, because that because you're shit fat. is disgusting. Sorry, um, you're not fat. So yeah, you might on, be. I don't know who you are. Head on over to Patreon dot com slash House of Sand and please support us where you can, and you get cool bonus things like cut tangenty bits of the podcast and backstage chats and video content and invitations to special events when we are in your town, which if you're in Adelaide, Sydney, Wellington, Canberra or Perth is pretty regularly. You can also support us for more than a dollar, of course. Maybe you could do a cup of coffee a month. Three would be really nice. That'd be good. So do that and um, we'll talk to you soon. Love you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.